So I want to uh, share that with you this morning. I told uh, I told my girls to give them a couple of weeks before they had to make a mission report. Thought we were at the ocean there for a minute, uh, but uh, I know you're all anxious to hear about their uh, grand adventures, and we're uh, just thrilled that they're they're home. Uh, as as you probably know, I, I really love great movies and great stories. And one of the things that great stories often have is really great villains. There are those people in the stories, the people that we love to hate. And a lot of times, the heroes in our stories are made heroes because of their opposition to great villains. And so... Uh, Dr. Jekyll has to have his Mr. Hyde, and Sherlock Holmes has to have his Moriarty, and uh, Luke Skywalker has to have his Darth Vader, and Batman has to have his Joker. Now, in, in real life, heroes and villains are a little more complex than that. They're, they're often, uh, the, the lines between them are, are not off always that clear. Sometimes Sometimes the heroes aren't pure goodness, and sometimes the villains aren't pure evil. But we like the clarity of these stories. We, we like it when it's this, this epic battle between good and evil, between light and dark, between the, the force and the dark side. It, it, it clarifies things for us, and, and we kind of like it that way. As we read through the Gospel of Matthew, Probably uh, most people with a passing knowledge of the New Testament will recognize that the villains in the Gospels are the Pharisees. They are the bad guys. They are the ones that are always causing trouble. They are the source of constant conflict. And yet we sometimes don't recognize the complexity of them. The, the Pharisees were an interesting group, and in a lot of ways, not bad people at all. They're one of the three main sects of Judaism at this time. You have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. The Essenes we don't hear much about because they were uh, isolationists. They were off in the wilderness somewhere. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we read a lot about them. And of these three groups... In Judea at that time, the Pharisees are really, in a lot of ways, the most respected, the most looked up to, the most admired, the most influential of all the Jewish leaders. They are recognized as great scholars, as teachers. They are devout followers of the law of Moses. And so Jesus very often shocks his listeners when he is telling them that the Pharisees are not all that. When he's saying, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, we read where Jesus says, if you're not more righteous than these guys, if you can't do it better than these guys, you have no hope of entering the kingdom. This was a shocking message to the people because in, in their minds, the Pharisees are the ones who are doing it better than anybody else. They're the most devout. They're the most religious. They're the most committed. You've got to be better than them 
in order to make the cut. Jesus shocked people with these criticisms. Why? Why are they on his, uh, the top of his list this way? Well, we know that they regularly challenge him. They challenge him about all kinds of things. They bring to him clever little debate questions that they try to trap him in. And already, you know, just reading through the first half of the Gospel of Matthew, they challenge him about fasting. They say, you know, because they had, they had a, a schedule for fasting and they made sure everybody knew when they were fasting. Jesus and his disciples not fasting. So they challenge him on that. They challenge him on healing, particularly healing on the Sabbath. Because that's a no-no. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? You're doing work. Uh, they challenge him on this claim that he can forgive sin. Say that's that's blasphemy to say that you you can forgive sin. One of those challenges comes to us in our passage today, Matthew chapter 12, first couple of verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Okay, and we'll just pause right there. First of all, what we need to understand is that the disciples are not actually doing anything that's unlawful. This was this whole business of being able to glean wheat. The, you know, they, they're, they're transient preachers. They, they don't have any money. And so they had the legal right to glean wheat from certain parts of the field. There's nothing illegal about them picking the wheat. What's at contest here is the Pharisees' traditions. The Pharisees had these traditions that they cocooned around the law. So if the law said you couldn't work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees would develop this big list of things that you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, you couldn't just sit still and do nothing all day. So they'd allow you a certain amount of movement. They would allow you to feed yourself. They would allow you. But there were all kinds of, they had a long list of all the things that you couldn't do and how far you could walk before you had to stop and, and all, all kinds of rules around that. So they have these traditions that they kind of cocoon around the law. And the idea behind that was that if I build this cocoon around the law, then I'll violate the tradition before I violate the law. And that way, I can keep the law. I'll have this buffer zone. Well, the problem is, over time, the buffer zone in the minds of the Pharisees and in a lot of the people becomes equal to the law. And so here, in this case, there's somebody claiming, the Pharisees are claiming that what Jesus' followers are doing is unlawful. Why? Well, because you broke our traditions. So it's that cocoon. Now... Owing to conflicts like this and owing to the interactions that the Pharisees have with Jesus and Jesus' teachings about them, the term Pharisee has become synonymous with legalist and hypocrite. 
in the eyes of the, of the pharisaical cocooning tradition, the disciples of Jesus, by doing this, by just going through the field, picking heads of wheat and putting it in their mouth, had broken no fewer than four of their rules. They were uh, reaping, they were threshing, they were winnowing, and they were preparing food. Like this. Four rules that they broke by doing that on the Sabbath. So you can see that as scholars and teachers and tenders of the law of Moses, the Pharisees were very often guilty of imposing excessive burdens on people. So this is simply a matter of hungry people feeding themselves. And now because of the system of traditions and rules that we've created, uh, this is this terrible, terrible thing. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, the end of the chapter, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, this is not Jesus saying that discipleship is without cost. We've already covered that. Jesus teaches very clearly that there is a cost to discipleship, and you need to count that cost. You need to know what it's going to take. But he is saying that I am not going to impose meaningless burdens upon you. Each time that the Pharisees confront Jesus, Jesus dismantles these burdens that they want to impose upon him and, by extension, all of Judea. But here's the interesting thing. As many times as the Pharisees approach Jesus, Jesus doesn't necessarily wait for the Pharisees to come to him to start an argument. Jesus actually kind of trolls the, the Pharisees. You're the older ones in, in, the, in the room this morning. The younger ones know what that means. To troll somebody is to throw out an insult to try to get a reaction. Jesus does this all the time. He provokes the Pharisees. He calls them names. He says all kinds of things about them that uh, are not particularly flattering. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them blind leaders. He calls them boastful, self-righteous show-offs who are only fit for hell. Pretty friendly dialogue. I want you to understand that there's a reason that this happens, and it's not maybe the reason that we would think. Jesus provokes the Pharisees because they were close to the truth. Not because they're far away from the truth, but because they're close to the truth. There were plenty of people in Jesus' day who were far more evil than the Pharisees were. He's not going after them because they represent the darkness uh, uh, of evil. He's going after them because their message is tainted, because it's close to the truth. And it sounds like the truth. In a lot of ways, it looks like the truth, but it is tainted. Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be more righteous than these. And yet, 
he counsels the people to do the things that the Pharisees teach them to do. How is this possible? How does that work? Well, we need to understand that Jesus is calling out the good things about the Pharisees. Now, we're not used to thinking in those terms. We're accustomed to thinking of the Pharisees as the villains of the New Testament. So we don't think in terms of the Pharisees having good qualities. But Jesus is sort of calling out those good qualities. Uh, They are devoted students of the Torah. They are keepers of the law. They are devout in prayer and in charity and in worship. They are fixtures of the local synagogue. And in an era of Hellenism, Hellenism is this movement that seeks to adapt Judaism to Greco-Roman culture, basically to compromise it, sometimes compromising it almost out of existence, just to come start to look more and more like Greco-Romans. It's the Pharisees who stand up to all of it and say, no, we need to get back to the fundamentals of faith. We need to hold true and firm, and we need to stick to the law. We need to please God. That's who the Pharisees are. They, perhaps more than anyone, are longing for the Messiah to come. And yet, when he arrives, (laughs) when he arrives, they are unable or unwilling to see him for who he is. And so Jesus is critical of the Pharisees because of all the people, these are the most learned Of all the people, these are the ones who should know who he is, but won't know who he is. They are so close. They have the same Bible. They have so many of the same doctrines. They use the same vocabulary. But what they don't have is the same mission. See, The mission of Jesus is saving the world. Jesus tells us this. I've come to call sinners. I've come to seek and save the lost. I've come to make all things new. These are all things that Jesus is about. He is here to save the world. He arrives to save the world. Even today, through his church, the mission is still the world. Jesus commissions us. He says, go into the world and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. The mission continues to be saving the world. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the long-awaited King. Jesus is the Deliverer, and yet he is not what people of his day are expecting him to be. And so the people really led in their theological thought by the Pharisees, cannot or will not see that he is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King. So Jesus says about them in, in, uh, again, Matthew chapter 11, this time verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. 
the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What is he saying here? He says, okay, John presents the beginning of the gospel message with austerity. He's, he's a teetotaler. He, he doesn't participate in revelry. He's just down to business. Jesus comes and presents the, the gospel message with celebration. And he, and he does drink. He goes to weddings and turns water into wine. He likes a good party as much as the next guy. And he's enjoying himself. And his, his, his followers are not fasting. They're not mourning because they're celebrating the presence of, the, of God with them. Jesus says, look, it, it didn't matter how John presented the message. And it doesn't matter how I present the message, even though they're completely different presentations, because the problem is not the presentation, the problem is the message itself. You're rejecting the message itself, and that's why you reject the messenger. You're rejecting the message. Jesus came to save the world. That is his mission. The mission of the Pharisees is preserving their religion. I want you to imagine that for a moment. You've got a group of people. They are waiting for the Messiah, anxiously waiting for the Messiah to come. And they miss his arrival because of their religion, a religion that is built around waiting for the Messiah. That is depressing. Makes me think, of, you know, when I, I remember when I was a kid, my family, we took our first road trip down to Texas. My two older sisters were in school down in Texas, and we drove down there for their graduation. And I remember going to Texas, and we visited at the home of some old family friend. And I remember this guy saying, uh, he was talking about us being from California, and he said, oh yeah, I've been out to California. But I didn't like all those trees and mountains because they get in the way of the view. Like, the view, it's true. Out in the plains of Texas, you can see for miles. And it's good because miles is all there is to see. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like God's beauty because it gets in the way of my view of God's beauty somehow. This is what the Pharisees do. They're so intent on the Messiah that they have in mind that when they see him, they want to scoot him out of the way so they can see past him to what they're looking for. They cannot accept him as he is. The Pharisees literally witness the glory of God walking around and they don't want any part of it. Let's return to our opening story, this complaint about Jesus' disciples harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. 
Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, there's something I want to make very, very clear to you at this point. Sabbath is not the enemy. Jesus did not disrespect the Sabbath. He does not make an argument against the Sabbath. This is purely a question of application. How is it that you're applying your rules, your traditions, your law to our understanding of the Sabbath? And Jesus says, you are missing the whole point because Sabbath was not intended as a burden. It was intended for you as a blessing. That's very, very important. I I don't want to underemphasize this point. Understand, you need some Sabbath in your life. You need to be engaged with God's rhythm. You need to take time for rest. You need to know what it is to be in a relationship with God in your stillness. I know this is very difficult for us as Americans to do because the only thing we place value on is busyness. The busier I am, the more important I am. The busier I am, the more vital my life is. God has this other plan where at least once a week you slow down and you're still before God and relate to Him from that space. You need that in your life. I'm telling you right now because chances are you don't have it. You want that in your life. That is a blessing. That's not intended as a burden. I'm not saying you should do this because you need it for your salvation. I'm saying this is a blessing that God wants to give you. So understand that Jesus is not arguing against the Sabbath. I know so often we have taught this passage in some of our churches as if Jesus wants to cancel the Sabbath, and this is the justification for all of that. But the Sabbath is not the enemy. Rigidity is the enemy. I was uh, looking at ordering chickens this week. You know, I have to rebuild my flock this spring. I was looking at ordering chickens. I've been ordering from a place outside of Springfield for, for many years. And uh, chickens come in the mail. Uh, so if you're wondering about the old argument, which came first, the chicken or the egg, it's actually the postman that comes first. Chickens come in the mail. I've been getting them in the mail for a long time. Ordered from Estes Hatchery. And uh, uh, we used to sell chickens in Colorado at the various markets. And so uh, I've, probably, I've probably ordered thousands. I was looking at my next order, trying to sort all that out. And I was remembering that the first time I ever ordered chickens through the mail, I got them from the Sears Farm and Ranch catalog. How many of you remember the Farm and Ranch catalog? From Se- yeah, you remember? Uh, young people are going, what? It's, what? Sears? Sears is uh, 
was an, an amazing American institution. It was once a retail juggernaut, an American success story, now down to fewer than 200 stores around the country, and most of those are privately owned. Uh, but at one time, Sears had more than 3,500 uh, stores, anchor stores at different malls across America, and they had the biggest catalog business ever. And they built this business back in the railroad era. Started out trading watches and then jewelry and expanded to other things. And they built this enormous catalog business. And there was a time which every household in America had a Sears and Roebuck catalog. And particularly in rural areas like this, you could get quality goods at a reasonable price and it would be delivered through the mail right to your house. And you could get almost anything from Sears. A lot of houses in this area, and in fact all across the Midwest, are Sears kit houses. I've inspected some of them. They're still standing. They came as a kit. Not as, not as a set of plans, mind you. Sears sent you the whole kit, all the lumber, everything you needed, and you just built it from the ground up. You could buy that from Sears. You could buy washing machines, you could buy girdles, you could buy whatever you needed out on the homestead, it all came from Sears. And when you were done with the catalog, you took it to the outhouse and it had another use. Sears catalog is part of Americana. Now I have to tell you, I was working at Sears. I sold, I sold stuff from in the men's department. I worked in the men's department. I was working at Sears when they killed their catalog business. Now, I was sad about this. Uh, there was a certain nostalgia for the catalog business. Not only had I ordered my first group of chickens from the Sears Farm and Ranch catalog, but the Sears catalog that came to our house every year, some of you will remember this, was bigger than most cities' phone books. It was two inches thick. It was an enormous catalog. And then they had a supplement that came out at Christmas time that was another inch thick. And, and that, we, that was our dream book, right? We'd go through that, oh, circle all the stuff I want Santa to bring me. I grew up with that. And I, and I have a soft spot in my heart for that. But Sears was struggling. It had these discount retailers like Walmart and Target that were growing and they were taking a lot of market share. And at one point, the catalog business at Sears, because of high shipping costs and everything, was losing a million dollars a day. Okay? It, this is a company that at one time was making hundreds of billions of dollars. So if you can understand it, a million dollars a day was still a huge loss. And so they shut, they shut the whole thing down. Now, I'm telling you all this because uh, especially you young people need to understand Sears and Roebuck was Amazon before there was an Amazon. In fact, they were Amazon before there was an internet. And here's the interesting thing, folks. A lot of, a lot of us old-timers don't know this either. Sears launched their online business four years before Amazon was even a company. 
They, got st- they saw the writing on the wall. They knew that shipping out these enormous tomes, these catalogs that, were, that cost a fortune to ship, they knew this, this was not long for the world, and they started adventuring into online business, and they set up Sears.com. There's still a Sears.com today. It's terrible, but it's there. Here's the thing. There's every reason in the world that Sears should have monopolized that business. They were so far ahead of the game. They'd been in that business for so long. They had the distribution. They had the know-how. They should have been Amazon. But the difference between them was that Amazon, Amazon was a new company with complete freedom to innovate. And Sears was a very old company that didn't want to invest in its infrastructure and that was burdened with its very top-heavy executive management. In other words, they were too rigid to adapt. And so this once powerful, most powerful, probably most innovative retailer on the American scene, today, the original Sears only exists on paper. They've been in bankruptcy for years. The few Sears stores that we have are actually owned by another company. That's, that's what happened. This is the way that Jesus talks about it. This is from Matthew chapter 9. It says, No one, verse 16 and 17, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is kind of complicated, but the, the gist of this is that rigid religion cannot accommodate a vibrant mission. Like a faltering retailer that cannot adapt to the new realities of the marketplace. Rigid religion is too enamored of its own machinery to retool for a new mission. Now, I know when we talk about these wineskins, some people imagine like a Boda bag, like those leather sort of canteen things that people use. But actually what we're talking about is a whole goat skin. And it's really interesting. I, I managed to find an article about a, a modern winemaker who tried all of this out, went using these ancient texts and was, was trying these procedures out and, and made wine in a, in a, in a wineskin. Basically, if you're making this wine, and you crush all the grapes and you leave them in this big vat and they begin to ferment in the vat. And while you're doing that, you slaughter a goat and you skin it. And you take that skin and you sew it together and literally has everything there except the ends of the legs and the head. So it's in the shape of a goat. (laughs) And you sew it closed and you make this bag out of it. And after a few days of that wine being in the vat, you separate the wine from all the crushed grapes. You just have that fermenting juice. And you pour it into this skin and then you, you tie it all up. Now, understand that in a modern winery, that fermentation process generally all takes place in a big vat. 
but it's in a clean space, a clean room. Well, you don't have clean rooms in the ancient world in which to um, ferment this wine. And so how do you keep the wine clean while it continues to ferment? Well, they would pour it into this skin. They would fill it up, fill up this goat skin completely, and sew it closed. Well, if you understand the fermentation process, and you know that as the uh, sugars are consumed in the grape juice, making that alcohol, you're also releasing uh, carbon dioxide. So you're releasing this gas. In modern wineries, you have to be careful while this is happening because it displaces so much oxygen that if you get around it without protection, you'll pass out. Guess what it does to a goat skin? It fills it up and turns it into a goat balloon. So now you have this inflated goat body with the legs sticking out, stretches it to its very limits. And after three months, you cut the goat skin open and you pour the wine into jars because now the fermentation process is complete and now it's time to age the wine. It's not expanding anymore. Okay, so Jesus is using this as a metaphor for what it's like introducing this new and vibrant ministry to the people. He says, if you take this new wine that I'm offering you and you pour it into a wineskin that's already spent, that's already expanded as much as it's going to expand and has started to harden and dry out, it's just going to burst it open and everything will be lost. And so you put it into a new wineskin, and in that new wineskin, there is the flexibility, there is the pliability, there is the ability to, to grow, to be reshaped. What Jesus wants to give us stretches us. It transforms us. Or, if we are unwilling to be stretched and, and transformed, it'll make our head explode. You see, the tragedy of the Pharisees is their inability to accept deliverance. There are notable exceptions, of course. The Apostle Paul was a, was a Pharisee, probably the most famous converted Pharisee, who becomes uh, the most influential theologian for the Christian faith. There are notable exceptions. But most of the Pharisees, in the face of the Messiah having arrived, most of the Pharisees live in their old skin. They just live there, and they know it. And so the awaited Messiah arrives, and they would rather kill him than surrender to him. Now, the risk of being overly negative, can I just say that I often think that if Jesus showed up in the church today, there's a good possibility that we would kill him or at least run him off? Because religion can become so rigid. We can become so rigid in our thinking, in our expectations, in our assumptions. And when God tries to do something new, 
we not only resist it, we fight it off. The truth is that religion has a way of protecting us from transformation. Understand this. The Pharisees have all the right words. They have the right Bible. They have the right doctrines. They go through all the right motions. But they do not have the right mission. So when God does a new thing, even a new thing that had been prophesied to come, that they've been told to expect, their skin is so rigid, their hearts are so hard, that they either have to reject Jesus or they will explode. They will break. The truth is that religion still settles into tradition. It settles into comfort. It makes us rigid, sometimes makes us unteachable. And when Jesus wants to do a new thing in our lives, in in our homes, in our churches, we're unable to accept it, unable to adapt. We push back against the newness. We We defend ourselves from transformation. We defend ourselves from an opportunity to commune with God. We defend ourselves from hope. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Jesus... This is, this is the secret that I want to tell you this morning. Jesus is always trying to do a new thing. Always. He always has a new place for your life to go. He always has better things in mind for your home. And He's always got a plan for the church. And folks, right now, in this church, I believe Jesus is doing a new thing. He is pouring new wine into us, and we will either stretch, expand, grow, transform with what Jesus is doing, or we'll blow up. But the newness of God, the newness of God's work, requires a pliable soul. I am reminded of a scripture song that I knew growing up. Scripture song from Lamentations. We don't sing a lot of songs from Lamentations because Lamentations is a book of lament, which is another way of saying mourning or sadness. We don't like to sing songs about sadness. They don't naturally write themselves. But Lamentations is a song about the sadness of having rejected God and God's discipline because of it, but it is punctuated by these moments of incredible hope. So we used to sing this song, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Get that? His mercy is new every morning. Jesus wants to do something new in your life every morning. And the only question left for us to answer is will we have a soul that is pliable enough to receive what Jesus wants to do? Will we be able to grow with Him and alongside Him? Or will we burst at the seams because of our rigidity? Have we held on to a skin that was supposed to last us a few months and we've just lived in it for 30 years? Or will we allow Jesus to do a new thing? See, because we have this promise have this promise that if I have fashioned this life such that it has the flexibility, the pliability, the welcoming of newness, that he will do a new thing in me. We can meet his new wine with a soft and pliable soul. And if we do, we will grow and we will go in ways that we never thought we would and never believed.